there's four new individuals that have been uh, that will uh, being that are being considered and proposed to become part of the elder team. And there's a yellow handout back there with information uh, about that process and who they are and things like that. So you'll let me hear mo- you'll hear more about that even on the fifth. We'll talk about that briefly. But um, so th- the fifth is communication as well as connecting with one another and enjoying uh, wings from Buffalo Ace and something else they're going to have too. I'm not sure yet. So, all right, uh, that's all the paper. I'll put all my paper away. So. Um, but there's ways to connect and ways to, to grow this summer. I want to encourage you to take advantage of that. And don't, don't take the summer off spiritually. Okay, um, let me pray, and then we're going to look into God's Word this morning. God, we, uh, we believe in the invisible world, and we believe that we're, uh, as we're even at this moment, we're sitting on a wooden floor and plastic chairs and breathing air so we know it's a physical world around us we're experiencing that even at this moment but we also believe we live in a world at the same time that we can't see and that's where the movements of our soul happen that's where the movements of your holy spirit happens that's even where the movements of the enemy opposed to us happens lying to us and discouraging us and so open our eyes to that world which is the world that fuels everything good Help us to hear what your Holy Spirit's saying to us. Help us to see uh, what he's showing us. Help us to respond with courage and obedience. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Every week when I uh, get ready to work on these sermons, I, I'll, I'll read through the chapter. So we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and I've been, this week, it was uh, Mark chapter 12. And my response, after I read through the chapter, chapter 12, my initial response was simply this, here we go again. Here we go again. Because it seems like, it, it's, in, it's fascinating as I've, I mean, I've been a Christian for a number of years, some of you have too, read the Gospels a number of times, some of you have had too, but there are times when you, you read a story from the Gospels that you've maybe read, you know, tons of times, and then you start seeing things, you're like, I never noticed that before. But it, it seems like, and it's kind of like, like a car. You know, we have a, I'm a real big fan of the Honda CRV now, lately. We have one. So now it's like, you know, when you, when you focus on that, then you see them everywhere. It's like, oh, there's one, there's one, there's one. Whereas before, you never noticed them. So it seems like one of the things that happens in the Gospels of Mark, especially a lot, is Jesus is confronting people. So Mark chapter 12 is like more times where he's kind of going right after the Pharisees. And that's what kind of generated this, here we go again, he's not letting up on these people. He is not letting up on the spirit of arrogance and the spirit of religion. He's not letting up on that. So it must matter to him pretty intensely. Because it's like, I, I mean, if I had been one of the disciples, I'd, you know, yeah, he's confronted him there, confronted him there. Okay, Jesus, you, you made your point. But then in, in Mark 12, which is the week that he's going to get arrested, he's in Jerusalem, he's in the temple, and he's confronting again with the Pharisees. So... We need to hear why is that so important to Jesus? Why is that so important to Mark to record those stories? Because, like, here we go again. He's, he's coming at it again and again and again. So, like I said, we've been doing a series called Seeing Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and my whole point has been, like I've said, sometimes we, we think we know Jesus, and we do in some ways, but then you realize, I, didn't, I never saw that before. And you start seeing things, and it kind of makes you wonder, okay, I want to make sure I'm following the biblical Jesus. Not the Jesus of my uh, 
hopes and dreams or even imagination. So in Mark chapter 12, I've just titled this, Jesus in Jerusalem, Confrontational and Controversial. And uh, you could probably pull out, well, you could pull out many stories in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is confrontational and controversial. I mean, he's not just that. I mean, I've said other times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is controversial, confrontational, he's truthful, blunt, disruptive, he's sensitive, compassionate, kind, he's brilliant, he's wildly free, he's full of mercy, he heals. I mean, this guy is, he, he is the one we've all been waiting for. And we don't always think about it that way, but he's not just powerful and healing and compassionate and supernatural. He's confrontational, he's controversial, he says things he says truthful things to people that we all wish we could say, but nobody has the courage to say, but he says it in ways that need to be said. So I'm just going to, there's, there's five different kind of stories or little vignettes in Mark 12, and I'm just going to jump through each one of them, go real quickly through each, not quickly through each one of them, but every one of them, well, the first three or four, he's, he's hitting the Pharisees. Again, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, the religious teachers. And it wasn't so much, and they were, before we knock on the Pharisees too much, these were most likely men who started their spiritual lives with really good intentions. They wanted, they, they wanted to obey, they wanted to do the right things, they wanted to memorize scripture and do the right things and give their money and do things. So I, I don't doubt, like all of us, things start with good intentions. But somehow over time, and this is true in our lives too, good intentions kind of give way to the, what I'll just call the spirit of religion, which is not really the spirit of Jesus. It's the spirit of religion. It's the spirit of being impressive. It's the spirit of being in control. So the Pharisees, and they had these fancy hats, and they were not only the religious leaders, they had kind of governmental almost control. I mean, even to this day, I mean, I was in... I was in Israel years ago, or four or five years ago, and the, the very conservative Jews who were kind of like the Pharisees, they still have influence because uh, on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday, the hotel I was staying in, the elevator on Saturday was set to stop at every single floor lest a conservative Jew get in the elevator and pressing the button would, con would uh, be work, and you don't want them to work on the Sabbath so you get in the elevator, and it stops on every floor. So if you're a very devout conservative Jew, you don't have to work on the Sabbath. And even sadly enough, too, they didn't have the coffee machine on on the Sabbath because pressing the button would be work. So they had pre-made coffee in a thermos that wasn't all that hot. But I'm just saying that even today, there's that sense that they wanted to do the right things. But wanting to do the right things without the right spirit leads you in a really bad direction. So these were powerful people, always esteemed by the people. So Jesus is not just, he's just, he's not just kind of going after the community activists. He's going after the powers that be. So it's almost like Jesus is saying these things to the group of pastors and the group of uh, uh, civic leaders and even governmental leaders. That's who he's talking to. So people that had power to, to hurt him, and that's what they ended up wanting to do. All right? First one's this. All right, Mark chapter 12. Jesus says to the religious leaders in so many words, you're wicked. He tells this story, again, this is in the temple, with all of them around, and the Passover is coming, so people are around. He tells this story, and he says, well, there was, it's a parable, 
says there was this farmer who had this land, and he let these tenants take care of the land. The farmer wanted, or the owner of the land wanted to collect what was due his, so he sent his son, or he sent a representative to these farmers to collect his money, and they beat the representative up and sent him back. Well, then the owner says, well, I'm going to send another representative. They beat him up, and they send him back. Then the owner finally says, well, I, now I'm going to send my son to collect dues from those who are stewarding my land. And those who were stewarding the land, Jesus says, decided, this is the owner's son. Let's kill him. And they killed the owner's son. And, of course, Jesus, they, everybody knew exactly what he was talking about. He was saying, you Pharisees are the farmers. The representatives I sent were my prophets that you kept refusing to listen to, and you still refuse to listen to, and now I'm sending my son, and you're going to kill him. And, and Jesus, it says the Pharisees knew Jesus was talking about them as the wicked farmers. So they're, they're in the audience when he's talking about this. They're not just out across the street. They're listening. And the people are there listening too. And so Jesus is saying in a very par parable way, but absolutely crystal clear, you're wicked. And that's not a way to win friends and influence people, right? But that's what Jesus was saying. You're, you're the wicked farmers. You don't listen to anything God says. And you're even rejecting his son. So that's the first scenario in Mark chapter 12. Next one, Mark chapter 12. <laughs> the religious leaders, I'm, I'm, only la I'm, I'm laughing because sometimes it, you, you kind of you look at the Pharisees and see what they're thinking, but then you also realize I could see me being there too and doing the same thing. This time the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And they say... Uh, Okay, Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay, Rome was in charge. They were like the Nazis occupying Israel, not wanted there, resented, abusive. So they say, okay, Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? They're really trying to trick him because if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, the Romans could arrest Jesus and they would do the dirty work for the Pharisees. If he say, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jewish people are like, no, we're not supposed to, we, we don't want to pay taxes to Caesar. So they're trying to trap him. And, well, Jesus, he saw right through it. And he says, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. He saw through their hypocrisy. He says, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. And they handed him, and then he says to the Pharisees, whose picture's on this coin? And they say, it's Caesar's. And he says, well then, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar." And give to God what belongs to God. And it says their answer amazed the people because he didn't take either side. But Jesus saw through their hypocrisy of asking one question but really wanting something else. And again, lest we jump on the Pharisees and throw stones at them like we're better than them, I suppose there's times where I may be asking Jesus one question, but I really know what answer I want. I'm not really being open with him. Or I'm asking him a question as what I would call a smokescreen question. You know, I've had people ask, you know, and I, or I've asked God these questions, or other people have asked, well, they're asking something about the Bible, but you kind of sense it's a smokescreen because they really don't want to deal with other stuff. But Jesus says, okay, now, so he said they were wicked, now he's saying they're hypocrites. And again, you can see over in the corner of the Pharisees fuming. And it says they wanted to kill him at this point. They knew they wanted to kill him. Now it's just how. 
Okay, next one. This next story, he basically calls them ignorant. Because they come to him again. They're trying to trap him again. They said, Jesus, here's what happened. Uh, a man died and left a wife without children. Um, the law says his brother could marry the widow and have a child. Well, suppose there's seven brothers, and the old one married, he dies, and the second one marries, and sec he dies, the second one marries the same wife, but he dies, and the third one marries the same wife, then he dies, he goes through seven. Okay, Jesus, at the resurrection, who's going to be the real husband? I mean, it's like, not a real important question, but to them it was a real important question, because they were trying to see if, you know, how Jesus interpreted the law, and again, they're, they're trying to embarrass Jesus, and Jesus basically says to him, you don't even know the scriptures. Your mistake is you don't know the scriptures. You're ignorant of the scriptures. Now, keep in mind, he's saying this to people who had memorized large portions of the Old Testament. And he's saying, and they were known as these people know the Bible. In that case, it was the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying to them, you're mistaken. You don't understand the Bible. And they're like, oh, I could, I could recite you the whole book of Deuteronomy. And they probably could. They didn't say that in the text, but I'm sure they're thinking that. So it's interesting that even knowing the Bible doesn't mean you're a spiritual person. And I'll say that again, because I was having the conversation with somebody about this last week. You might have the Bible memorized. You might have big passages memorized. You might, in a good way, it's good to know Scripture. But you can know the Bible backward and forward and still have a heart that Jesus says is ignorant of the Spirit of God. I'm not saying we shouldn't study the Bible and memorize the Bible, but if you're only doing it for the sake of memorizing it, but you don't let it sink into your heart, which only the Spirit of God can do, <laughs> Jesus says you're ignorant. I mean, again, that's a pretty powerful thing to say to somebody who thinks they know the Bible. And, uh, you know, I was, I was reminded last week, I was talking to a friend of mine about people we knew in our high school, gr youth groups, that knew the Bible well. They, they won these quizzing events, and they could quote scripture and do this, and they aren't even close to walking with God today. But could they probably spout off scripture? Yeah, they could probably spout it off. So you even get to, uh, I mean, you look at like, okay, Bible memory, praying, going to church. I mean, the Pharisees scored tens in all of those, 10 out of 10. But it's, so those behaviors are important, but if you're measuring your spiritual health by those behaviors, be careful because if you're measuring your spiritual health by a behavioral paradigm the Pharisees can score A pluses on, your paradigm's wrong. Something's wrong. If you're just gauging it by the behaviors you're doing and not the spirit of your attitude, and we'll cover that in a second. But So he said they're wicked. He said they're hypocrites. He says they're ignorant. This is all in the context of one chapter, probably in one day during the week he was crucified. And last, the last one in terms of negative, he says they're frauds. Again, which is, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't mince his words. He says, beware of these, this is in verse 38, beware of these teachers of religious law. For they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk about in the marketplace. And oh, how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious. Just that phrase right there. Pretend to be pious. By making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. So 
So he says, yeah, they love to be seen as spiritual. They love to be in the marketplace, pray in public, and they, they do all the right things. But he said, they use the law against the poor and against the widows, and he basically says, they're frauds. They pretend to be pious. Um, and this is where the word I'll use on this one, which I think we, I can relate to, and I'm hoping you can too. An author I used this term. They were guilty of what uh, this author calls the sin of image management. Image management is when you or I do things in such a way because we know we want to be perceived by people as good people or spiritual people. But we, if we're honest, we know the perception we're trying to create may not match the reality that we know of our own hearts. So we do and say things to get the perception. Example, when I was in college, it was a Christian college. There, I'm not saying going to church is like the end all. You have to go to church all the time, no matter what. There were kids that wouldn't go to church on Sunday morning, but they'd dress up to go to the dining hall for lunch because they wanted the perception to be, I just came from church. I never did that. <laughs> um, I never thought about it. That's probably why. But, but again, it was because the first, they, they, I mean, they'd roll out of bed at 1130, get their suit and, or coat and shirt and tie on or dress all nice and then go to the dining hall. And the perception was, I just came from church. They really should have just rolled out with their sweats on. But they were concerned, which we can relate to, about the perception of other people. I don't want to be judged by people. I don't want to know who I really am. So often the, the, the sin of image management probably keeps you and I from, probably ha makes us do things that we know are incongruent with the real state of our souls, even saying things, or we don't do things because we're concerned about how people see us. And it seems like over and over again, the people that had the most favor from Jesus were the people that didn't care anymore about whether they, how they were perceived. What they cared most of all is they just wanted to connect with Jesus. And if Jesus seems to favor, not seems to, he does. He favors the vulnerable, the humble, and the broken. He doesn't favor those who look good. I mean, of course, we don't want to not look good, but we don't, the, the objective is not we want to look good. The objective is we want to have a good heart. And that's what looks good in the eyes of God. So Jesus is like, they're frauds, they're wicked, you're hypocrites. Now, uh, I will say in this chapter, there's two examples where it seems like Jesus is saying, now this is maybe what I'm looking for. So you can kind of imagine, I mean, it's see, over and over in the Bible, there's two groups. It seems as if our people are separated into broadly. There's the proud, and then there's the broken. The proud are those that Jesus just addressed. Those who were the frauds, they were the wicked, they were the image management people. Uh, they, they knew their hearts weren't aligned with God's. Or they didn't know, they thought they were. And then there were the broken, those who understood, I have needs. I, I have something broken to me, and I need, I need something bigger than me to bring wholeness and healing to that. But over and over again, the Bible doesn't separate people between <laughs> conservative and liberal, or Democrat and Republican, or Episcopal and Baptist. He doesn't, those things don't matter to God at all. What matters to God is, okay, what do I see from your heart? Do I see pr pride or do I see humility and brokenness? The Bible says God resists the proud, but he esteems the humble. In the book of Isaiah, God even says 
this is who I esteem. I esteem the one who's broken and humble in heart. So God puts in a trophy case people that are humble. And I'm, humble does not mean, you know, woe is me. Humble is a very strong character quality. Brokenness and contriteness is a very strong character quality. So these are not people who have just low self-esteem. These are, Moses is said to be the most humble man to walk the earth. Jesus was humble. It was in humility he obeyed to go to the cross. So humility is not a weakness. It's a powerful strength. So over and over, Jesus is showing that's what. So here's the two examples of. So then, then there's an example. Go to the next one. There's a, there is a religious leader that speaks up in this chapter. So it's probably somewhere during these days, a few days before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, where Jesus has kind of gone at some of this guy's buddies. You know, you're frauds, you're wicked, you're hypocrites. And then this one religious leader says to Jesus, um, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And you get the sense that this person, this religious leader, is asking out of a heart that's not trying to trap. He really wants to know. And Jesus sees that. And Jesus replies, the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one only God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says, this is it. The whole law is loving God with everything in your being and love your neighbor as yourself. This teacher of religious law replied, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth by saying there is only one God and no other, and I know it's important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important, and this is where he probably even ticked off some of his friends. This is a religious leader saying, doing that is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices required by the law. So he's saying, loving you, God, and loving my neighbor is more important than all the religious activity that I've been doing my whole life. Sacrifices, and they were perfectionists about doing the right things, the right kind of sacrifice, doing it the right way, the right time, the right cut, and the burnt, whatever. So this guy, is, something's clicking, and he's saying, you're right. Loving you and loving others well is way more important than all the religious activities I've been taught to do. And that's when Jesus says to the, this teacher of the law with his big hat on and lo long beard, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is saying to this guy, you get it. You're getting it. You get God. You understand God. So that kind of sticks out of this chapter amidst the other four accusations. So just because they were fair, and not all the Pharisees were evil, wicked people, just like not all people that go to church are evil, wicked people, there are people that really want to know, I want to know what God wants of me. Then the last scenario in this chapter 12 is Jesus now talking about a poor widow, and this is what happens, and again, this has all happened in a couple days period. He sees uh, people, they had like giving boxes in the temple, probably not unlike our green lanterns, maybe, I don't know. And so he sees people putting money in, and some people would put money in, and they would do it in a way they knew they were being seen. So it was like, you know, pull out their money, and dump, ba -da -ba, bum, ba. And it was, they were wanting to be seen as giving a lot. And then over in some corner, Jesus says, sees a poor widow. We don't know how he knew that, but we put in like just a few coins, like the equivalent of probably less than a dollar change. And Jesus calls the disciples over and after he saw this happen, and he says, I tell you the truth, 
This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave away a part of their surplus, but she, as poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. So these people were giving out of their surplus. They knew they could keep their life at a certain comfortable level. She gave her own, all she had. In other words, he's saying this woman trusts God. These people are generous. And I don't think Jesus was criticizing them, but he's saying their trust isn't the quite as deep as what this woman's trust is. Now, of course, I don't think Jesus was mean to people. Give all your money all the time. But he is saying that's what trust looks like. Putting it all on the line. So Jesus has said these things about the Pharisees, frauds, hypocrites. And then there's one Pharisee who he says, no, you're, you're, you get it. And he says about this poor woman, that's trust. That's, that's absolute commitment to the things of God, to Jesus. That's trusting God to take care of her needs. So in this span of a chapter, he says all these things. So here's the question I'll leave, end with us, go to the next slide there. That's all you had. That's probably all I gave you then. Here's the question, though. I have it written down. Um, if Jesus watched you for a few days, or in his interactions with you, your interactions with him, or my interactions, what would he say about you? If he pulled his disciples over, and he kind of replayed my life for the last two days, would he say there were times I've been fraudulent or hypocritical or wicked? Or would he say I've done things out of trust and loving God and loving others well? What would he say? And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying this. I don't believe that God's intent is always to show us how bad we are. I do believe the spirit of Jesus consistently confronting the spirit of religious religion must mean that he has zero tolerance for that spirit inside of any of us. Zero tolerance. So we should be open as much as we know how to let God search our hearts and say, God, is there anything in me? Search me, O oh God. Psalm 139. Search me, O oh God. Know my heart. See if there's anything offensive in me. And then show me. Set me free. That's the spirit Jesus is talking about here. So, I was talking to somebody recently about a church they were attending, and they were, and, and, and it's good, they were saying, oh, it's always so positive, always so positive. Positive is always good. I mean, Jesus is for us, not against us. But part of the for us, not against us is sometimes he has to deal with the stuff that's getting in the way. Whether it's times where you've given yourself to image management or whatever. And so there's times, if you're going to be the kind of person God made you to be, that means think some things have to go. And Jesus is relentless in confronting those things in me and in you. And he will be relentless in confronting those things in you. Not because he loves to be relentless and to squash you into the ground like a bug, but because he knows what you can be full of life, power, forgiveness, mercy, strength. He knows what you can be. And he knows what's in the way. And the question is, will you trust him when he 
has those conversations with you? Do I trust him when he has those conversations with you? Do I let go of things that I think are going to give me life, and if I have to let go of it, I don't know, I don't, I, but do I trust him? So there are times, I, there's times where I think it's very healthy to have kind of a, that, that kind of introspection where you invite Jesus, um, kind of like I said, but that search me, oh God, know my heart. You, as wide open as I know, Jesus, I want you to show me what's going on inside of me. Um, I'll, I'll finish with this, just an example, and I, this is one of my favorite examples because it makes me, made me look kind of silly, and some of you heard it before, but when I, my wife and I were engaged in getting, uh, planning a wedding, we were uh, arguing about who was going to be the DJ at our wedding. Stupid, stupid, stupid argument. Um, I know some people here engaged, so you probably know what I'm talking about. We have these arguments over stupid things. She wanted a guy to sing at our wedding and a DJ, and I didn't want him to sing. We had this big fight about it. And you're thinking, that's kind of trivial. It was absolutely trivial, totally trivial. It was really all about who's in control here. I was tired of her making all the calls. All right? Somebody's getting married over here, right? Okay. I was tired of her making all the calls, and I thought, this is setting a precedent for marriage I don't like. You know, she's going to, she wants this guy to sing at our wedding. So we have this blow up about who's going to sing at our wedding. And she walks out of the living room where her parents live in a huff, or goes up to her bedroom in a huff. I felt really bad for her because I thought she had kind of blown her cool, kind of let angry get the best of her. Um, and I'm sitting there with a, some degree of, a large degree of smug satisfaction that I had acted holy. And you know where I'm going with this. And I, uh, actually she, she said as she left the room, this is important, you're just being a jerk. Um, so not only had she got angry, she let herself say hard things to me. Anyway. But I'm sitting there, and I'm kind of sitting there. She turned the light off as she left her. So I'm sitting there in her parents' living room with the lights off, feeling bad for her and feeling smug about myself. And I absolutely remember, and I, this has happened more often since then. I'm just, this is just a great example for me. I, felt, I heard the Spirit of God say to me, uh, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. As if God was saying, can I show the spotlight on what's going on inside of you right now? And I kind of said to God, um, she's upstairs. I think you need to go talk to her. She's got some anger issues she needs to work out. Um, but I felt like God was like, I felt like this spotlight was hanging over me. No, 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 I'm here. And I, lit I was sitting like this, and I remember literally feeling like I had to do this. Okay. I literally opened my arms up. Okay, God, what do you want to show me? Because I know I'm right. And I absolutely felt like I heard God say to me, and I think God uses these kind of words. God said to me, you were being a jerk. You were being unkind to her for the sake of, of, of just you wanting to be right and to be in control. And I had a very religious, smug spirit about how I right I was and how wrong she was, but God was wanting to show me, no, you were the one in the wrong there. You were the one that was speaking to her harshly and out of a spirit of control. That's the spirit of religion. And those are the kind of things I'm talking about that God may want to say, can I have a word with you? Can I talk to you about how you just handle that situation with your husband, with your wife, with your neighbor, with your boss, with that person you don't like, your enemy, and maybe I can show you things about how you can respond to them differently? That's, that's what I'm saying, and that's what I believe the spirit of Jesus wants from all of us. So, 
Let me pray. Jesus, like, uh, uh, we know you're for us. We know you're not against us. Um, and we know your spirit is never, ever, ever um, to crush our spirits. But you do need at times to expose us to ourselves and to you because you want to set us free. Um, and we want freedom. So, Holy Spirit, would you um, show us things today? Would you show us things this week? Would you show us things at the most inconvenient, uncomfortable times when you have to show us things about ourselves that you want to free us from? Because we want to be, be alive, awake, and free. We don't want to have any of those things stirring in our hearts that we think are okay to keep there. We want you to break those up. We want you to set us free. We want to be fully the men and women you've designed us to be, full of love and life and power that comes from the Spirit of God. And nothing inside of us blocking that. That's what we want to be. And we ask this all, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Um, we finish every Sunday with communion at Exodus. And um, we do it because it's like the sermon's not the high point, the music's not the high point. The high point of the service is always um, Jesus' life in us. So there's this, there's this symbolic, myst, 